That's terrible. Okay, we're live. Good. Let's see here. We're on Resh. If you uh, one nineteen one fifty three. One fifty three. Here we go. Resh. First top beginning head of man. <clears throat> Look upon my suffering and deliver me, for I have not forgotten your law. Defend my cause and redeem me. Preserve my life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek out your decrees. Your compassion is great, O Lord. Preserve my life according to your laws. Many are the foes who persecute me, but I have not turned from your statutes. I look to the faithless with loathing, for they do not obey your word. See how I love your precepts. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your love. Good. Okay. Hey, Tom, how you doing there? Yes, oh, my gosh. You what? There are. You're up. All your words are true. All, all your righteous laws are eternal. Yes. Okay, now you you've got now it. Now yeah, I, I didn't have my book open, so I wasn't paying yeah, attention. But, oh, okay. He got it all. Anyway, we'll go ahead and open in prayer here and uh, thank the Lord. Um, there's somebody that I wrote down a prayer request and I don't have it in front of me. And so I know somebody emailed me to, to pray for something today and I apologize. I, I, I've been trying to think of what it is and I wrote it down. It's got to be at home. But um, I also have a prayer request for uh, uh, the guy at 7-Eleven that I take care of every day. He's in the hospital and they asked me to pray for him. And I said we would. Uh, uh, Brian, he works in the, uh, he's always there. Yeah, 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 that guy. He's not doing well. Um, I can't say it on the, oh, yeah, yeah but I'll, 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 we'll talk about it later. So, Heavenly Father, we uh, do thank you for the chance to come here and meet together, and we thank you for uh, your precious word and the 119th Psalm, which uh, opened us today. We thank you for the treasures that are in your word, and would ask that you would help us to handle it properly, to, uh, to rightly divide it, and to just hold fast to it, and to uh, just always cherish this word, instilling it in our lives and, and staying close to it. And uh, we do pray for Brian, who uh, the ladies at 7-Eleven asked me when I stopped by there today to uh, pray for him. And I said I would. And here as a congregation, we pray for him and that he would be all right. Try to get a visit to him tomorrow if possible. We also pray for our brother Graham in Scotland, who is still really struggling. A couple good days this week and then a tough day today. And uh, we would pray that he would, you would be with him through this and just uh, be that uh, source of comfort to the family that uh, they need in this time of great stress in his life. And Lord, we do love you. We praise you. We exalt you. Thank you for the beautiful weather we've had. And we would pray for a little bit of rain here in the, the days ahead to give relief to the people that are suffering under uh, forest fires throughout Florida. And Lord, we just, we do. We love you and we praise you. And we give, uh, commit this uh, hour and a half to you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> um, I had somebody email me today, and he asked me to specifically address a couple things in Bible class. And we're going to go through it really quickly. I, I, I did respond to him, but he asked me to do this because he, he felt that uh, people were uh, uh, may want to know. Um, his church said um, it, it, it sounds like they're mandating this. And so it, that would be a little different than uh, uh, saying this is what we recommend. But the tone of his email sounded like this is what they were mandating attend church um, regularly, uh, attend all Bible classes, don't wear jewelry, and keep a weekly fast and no eating pork. And, yeah, that's just don't what he had. Yeah, and so um, I uh, emailed him, and I thought he said he wouldn't be here today. 
but, but you are. I, I, I miss you. Well, we missed you too. Boy, did we miss you. But I won't be there Saturday. Oh, no. We'll miss you. Um, so we have um, uh, attend church regularly. And I sent this to him, a response, but uh, Hebrews 10, verse 25. If uh, you know that one, I'm just going to go through these really quickly. These you are just some verses. The assembly yourselves together as a matter of some is. Uh, that's right. Don't. Uh, Do not forsake the assembly of yourselves together as the matter of some is. And so much more as you see the day, day approaching. approaching. That's right. Okay. So don't, don't forsake the gathering together. So that is something that Hebrew. Now, let me ask you, is that a command? No. 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 It is an exhortation. Okay, don't forsake the gathering together of the brethren. Okay, so the way that the email sounded to me is they're saying you must do these things. The Bible exhorts you to attend church regularly. Now we have, um, you know, streaming online. And we've got, um, I mean, there are people in England that don't have any church that's any good. So how can you meet the demand of that, right? right? But you can come online, you can fellowship (laughs) with the people through posts, which some people do. So I, it, we don't want to get legalistic about things, and the Bible does not command it, and that's pretty much the only verse that you're going to find on that subject. Uh, the next one is attend all Bible classes. That is never said in Scripture at all, but there are some verses that would implore you to um, follow proper doctrine, okay? I wrote down one of them, Ephesians 4, verse uh, 14, if I can read my handwriting, which says um, uh, Philippians, Ephesians. Um, Hang on a second here. Ephesians, Philippians. um, 4, verse 14 says, um, That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. The only way you're going to do that is by knowing your Bible. Now, my problem with saying attend all Bible classes, if, if you've got a Bible teacher that is incorrect to start with, then you've got a problem because all you're doing is learning his incorrect doctrine. Um, as I've said several times on, uh, you know, during this class, if you have a good Bible teacher that you can listen to, like Les Feldick, then listen to him. And But once again, even less, there are things that I will disagree with him on, and I will state why I disagree with him when I do. It's very infrequently, but there are a couple little things that he said that I say, I just can't agree with that. What about um, the uh, Berean church? The what? Oh, the Berean church. They studied the scriptures daily. Very good. Um, that was from the book of Acts. And it was something that they did. It wasn't so much a Bible class because they studied the scriptures daily. They were in there and they weren't, you know, I, I, I imagine they had the scriptures out and people came by and it wasn't a set Bible class because if it was, they had a daily Bible class. Right, but they but, knew to go back. But they knew that. to go back. They knew to check the scripture. And uh, what I did, and I'm going to have to redo it because I looked at uh, something else. Burke and I were talking. Uh, that's why I was going to read that one. Okay. Um, so he always gets ahead of me here. And it's his fault that I don't have um, uh, what I want on here because um, he got me into some other tangents. So, um uh, just type in the word doctrine. Okay, that's all you need to do. Doctrine, look that up. And I'm just going to read you a couple real quick verses on the subject of doctrine. Forget Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, those are that's Jesus speaking to Israel under law, except for John. But once again, I don't want to get into that right now. But it, 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 doctrine is important, Old Testament and New. But I'm talking about when you are talking about something you should be doing within the church. We should be going to the epistles because the epistles are what give us church age doctrine. Okay, I'm not saying to disregard those other things, but you you may not understand um, in context if you're going to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and looking up the word doctrine. So uh, that's why I'm trying to say. So we'll go really quickly with doctrine, uh, Romans. um, uh, But be thankful that you 
that though you were sons of sin, yet you obeyed from the, the heart that form of doctrine that was delivered to you. So doctrine is something, where does it come from? It comes from a teacher, it comes from a preacher, it comes hopefully from that teacher or teacher, preacher or teacher from the word of God, okay? How it came, maybe you read it, maybe they gave it to you, but faith comes by hearing, hearing comes by the word of God. Learning doctrine comes from the word of God. It doesn't come from an opinion about the word of God. So once again, it goes back to the Bible. And he's saying, when it says, attend all Bible classes, the way it sounds like to me in his email is that they're mandating that. Mm -hmm. Well, how many people are in the church um, uh, on Sunday morning? They're not here right now. And I've never gone to one of them and said, why aren't you here on Thursday night? That's, that's not my business. If they want to come, they know we have a Thursday night Bible class. If they have something planned or if they have something else to do, that's fine. And we've got other people that don't attend on Sunday. They come to Thursday night Bible class. And I never say, why weren't you in church on Sunday? That's your business, except for Burke, who I'm always getting all over. Why aren't you in church here? And he has no excuse ever. But um, actually, he uh, his son is a preacher, not a preacher. He's a, a minister at another church, and so he's excused for not attending here. Um, I love to pick on Burke. Okay, so that's one of them. Uh, there's another one in Romans about, um, Now I urge you, brethren, note that those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned. Well, where did you learn it from? You learned it from the apostles, and the apostles then wrote down their doctrine, and that's where you get it from. Go through the word doctrine in the New Testament. That will help you to understand it, but it never says you have to go to a weekly Bible study or all Bible studies or anything like that. Yes? Doctrine is teaching, right? Doctrine and teaching. That's what, well, it's teaching. Well, doctrine, it, it, it can be. Doctrine is the knowledge of a subject, okay? If you're teaching doctrine, then that would be correct. Okay. But teaching isn't always doctrine, and doctrine isn't always teaching. In the Bible, you can teach and not be teaching doctrine, right? Because that's you get a teacher that doesn't teach proper doctrine. Or he might teach about you know a football game that he was at last night. So, but yes, teaching should be about doctrine if you're in a Bible class. Yes, I agree with that. Um, next one. So just look up doctrine; that'll help you out. The next one is crazy. Don't wear jewelry. I don't understand. Where okay, that came from no doubt about it. Two Peter three three. So let me. Uh, let me Huh? I understand that, but it's crazy. That's what I'm saying. This is somebody gets a, a pet peeve in their head, and they decide that they want to impose that on everybody else. 2 Peter 3, verse 3 says, oh, it's 1 Peter 3, 3. I, I always do that. Uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 3. Oh, I'm just going to start with um, verse th uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Yeah, that Peter's saying, be a, a, a faithful Christian wife, and you will um, hopefully win your husband to the Lord. So much for being regenerated in order to believe, but that's a different subject. So something. if you have a wedding ring, don't um, wear that wedding ring. Well, yeah. Um, then it says, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be outward. Merely okay? outward. Well, merely is inserted, I but understand. it is a good <laughs> insert. Now, I'm going to tell you why in a minute, so let me go on. Do not let your adornment be outward. The word merely in this uh, Bible I skipped because it's inserted. Yes. Arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And then he gives an example. Holy women who trusted in God adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, blah, blah, blah. Sarah, he gives the example. Okay, first off, that is not prescriptive in the sense that you can't wear it. It's saying, don't let that be your display to the world. Instead, let your uh, your conduct be your display to the world. Now, why do we know that that's correct? Is because Sarah certainly wore 
nose rings and earrings and all the other things that women of her age did. Uh, what was it that um, uh, Abraham's servant, Eliezer, went up to Padamaram to get a wife for um, uh, Isaac. Isaac, and what did he do? The first thing he did, he whipped out a that's nose ring for her. That's, that's what you do, right? Here, here's a nose ring. And they, they, they adorn themselves. Read the uh, book of uh, the Song of Solomon. The women were adorned in beauty. They smelled good. They looked good. You know, all that kind of stuff. They took care of their hair. All of these things tell you that what they're telling this person in this church is a legalistic pet peeve. And that's all it is. That's the only verse you're going to find in the New Testament. And the word merely, which you said, is inserted because it is proper. Not because somebody's giving you a, a, a presupposition in their translation of the Bible by adding in the word merely. It's because if you take it in context, women of the Bible did have nice things and they did. You know, so it's not merely that. Okay, so he can throw that one out completely. The next one, keep a weekly fast. Anybody? Fasting once a week. Oh, once a week. Yeah. Anywhere in the New Testament that you I can think that you were required to do that? Yeah, I, yeah, that's right. We go, we fast and we go to sleep, and then we get up and we break our fast. By prayer and fastings. Okay, and that is 1 Corinthians 7, 5. So I'm going to read you that really quickly. This is the, oh, well, no, that's a different one. But here, yes, that is the one I want. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, which says, um, that's not the one that I want. Anyway, that is one, and I skipped over that, and I'm going to tell you why in a second. Do not deprive one another except with the consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. Is that the one you were talking Okay, so it is. Um, and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you. What is the context there? Marriage. Marriage. It's marriage and uh, depriving each other of the marriage rights. Okay, and he says, don't do that except for times of prayer and fasting. Is he mandating a weekly fast? No. No. That's the only time that you're going to find that in the New Testament where it's even hinted at, and it's not mandating anything. Okay. Further, Paul says, you know, in fastings and this and that, I went through these trials and I went through those trials. He's not telling them you have to fast. He's just simply saying that he went through fastings in his times of trials. If you want to fast, go ahead. If you don't, don't. If you do, keep your mouth shut about it because the Lord says that when people fast and they do it openly, they get no right. reward, right? So if you fast, just do it. But anybody that mandates fasting, I'd leave that church. I, I'm sorry, I just wouldn't. That's legalistic. It's, it, it's nutty and it has nothing to do with scripture. The last one, pork. Guess what? Old Testament law, it's set aside in Christ. Paul says uh, in uh, Colossians 2, 20 and 21, which I typed yesterday, uh, Colossians 2, um, he also talks about it in Romans, but Colossians 2, 20 and 21, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why is though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all, all concern things which perish with the using. In other words, when you eat it, it's done. It perishes. It corrupts, and it's not pork anymore, okay, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. The law is set aside. We are not under the law. We are not under any dietary restrictions at all. There's nothing that we can, that we must eat, and there's nothing that we are um, uh, prohibited from eating in the New Testament, in the Gentile-led church age. Nothing. So he had those questions. He asked me to address them. I addressed them. And if you have any more questions about it, just send me an email and I'll... Uh, think that's uh, part of, like, trying to control... That's all it is. It's bondage and it's control. That's all it is. That church wants to have bondage and control over their people. They probably mandate tithing and other things like that. And it's sad because the more freedom you give somebody, the happier your congregation is going to be. They may not show up to church as often. I don't know. I'm, you know, it's, uh, there's the debate that if you... Uh, uh, preach grace, then people say, well, then I'm saved. I don't need to go to church. 
Well, that may be the case, but I don't think that's the case. I've heard that logical argument from people. Well, you preach grace too much and they're not going to want to come. But to me, I've, I've, heard, I've heard that people say that before. But, you, but that's what the, the Bible Lord, tells us to preach is grace. I under, that's what I think. But anyway, um, so there you go. We've got that out of the way, and I hope that uh, the answer I gave him this morning was sufficient and that I addressed it per his request, and that was okay. And now we're in uh, Romans 4, verse 9. Uh, some progress, didn't you? Yeah, we did. We, I think we did four or five verses last week. So. Is this we got a new reader. Uh, oh, really stop. went fast. Oh yeah, yeah. You got a new reader, and it, it just burned right through it. Who was it? It was me. He read, he read too fast. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you really tripped things up here, Jim. You, you got to get with it, buddy. Okay, I'll slow down. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? Okay, I'm glad you read slow because I was in the book of 2 Peter still. I didn't even finish that. Oh, keep going then. <laughs> we have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, yeah, there you go. And mine's a little different. Does his blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Now, that's the beginning of a paragraph, so we don't need to go back. And uh, But anyway, Paul has been discussing... Uh, has been addressing David's comments, which are found in the Psalms, which point to the blessedness of man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. We talked about that. David understood that he should have been imputed sin, and the Lord should have held him guilty for what he did, and yet he didn't. And he said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. He found out that the law is not what saves him. Even under the law, he, he realized that, and he wrote that in the Psalms. And other places in the Psalms point to this as well. If you understand what God is telling the people of the world, that the law was there this morning. Wow. Post on the on uh, the uh, my daily prayer on the Facebook wall, and within a few seconds, somebody came in and was just tearing. You saw that, didn't you? I didn't see what the person Oh, well, here's what happened. I posted, the law is an old in Christ. We should live for you. Uh, and thanks to God for Christ. And I don't remember the exact prayer, but somebody came on almost immediately and said, that isn't apply that isn't pertaining to the law of moses that's pertaining to the the talmud in the midrash and the book of hebrews says nothing about the talmud or the midrash it is speaking about what has happened in redemptive history in the pages of the bible and anyway i went back and i cited hebrews 7 hebrews 8 and hebrews 10 which i always cite the law is obsolete it is annulled it is set aside in christ and then I gave him a couple other verses, and he came back, and he was just way belligerent. You know, capital letters all across, which oh, means he's angry. Oh, and uh, uh, he's, he's saying that we have to observe God's Torah, which he's not. I guarantee you I could take you to a thousand different things that are prescribed in the Torah, which he's not doing. Then he was belligerent a second time, and so I just blocked him. He's, he's never coming to my page again. And uh, then one girl came on who's very, very understanding of the grace of Christ, and she says, you should probably delete his comments, too, because um, somebody's going to read him, and it's just going to cause all kinds of conflict, which it would happen, so they got deleted as well. But that kind of stuff is just, it goes nowhere with me. People that want to argue that we are still under the law have not come to Jesus Christ. They have not understood the grace of Jesus Christ. And the last, the very last verse of the Bible tells us that. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It doesn't say, and the law, the Torah of God be with you all. Amen. It's over. It's done. He fulfilled that law. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, the blessedness apart from the law. 
Um, uh, it, he doesn't impute sin. Based on David's words, Paul shows that this blessedness translates into righteousness apart from works. And when it means works, <laughs> David was under what? He was under the law. And David understood that it is a blessedness apart from works. It doesn't mean from the Midrash or the Talmud or whatever that guy was instructed by somebody that wants him in bondage, just like that church you were saying. They want him in bondage because if you tell somebody you are obligated to the law of Moses, nobody knows the law of Moses. I mean, 99.999% of the people that have read the Bible do not understand it. And that's why we're going through it one verse at a time, one verse at a time. The book of Leviticus is going to be long. It's going to be uh, very, very precise. And it's going to show us all of these things that most people don't even understand when they read it because there's so many things tied in with it. But if you understand that what the law of Moses is telling you, you will understand that nobody can do the things of the law. Absolutely impossible. Well, isn't the Talmud just a rabbi's interpretation? Well, it, it's kind of more than that. What it is, it's a codification of Jewish laws, okay? They will comment on the, um, they will comment on the Torah. They will comment. It, now, the Talmud was compiled some things prior to um, the time of Christ. In other words, it's a compilation of oral traditions. It's a compilation of things that were part of their cultural society, and they built upon that. They also comment on the, the Torah and other things. And then this rabbi will argue against this rabbi, and they make these commentaries. And it just goes on and on and on. That's what the Talmud is, okay? That and, is Facebook before. Yeah, it's Facebook before Facebook. It's Facebook for rabbis, right? Oh and then goodness. this is what codified their law, and this is why they've got 10 billion laws to keep them all in check. And of course, the Jews don't even bother with it, most of them, because it's it's such a burden. It's such a weight. Why even bother? I'll be a Jew, and I don't need that anyway, because they all believe they're going to heaven. So it doesn't really matter. The observant people think they're whatever they're, they think. Maybe they're going to get a better place in heaven or something. I don't know what they think, but the Talmud is, is it, it's got all kinds of information in it. It's got all kinds of information. It's got stuff about the temple. It's got stuff about this, and it's got stuff about that. And it just, it, it, it's commentaries, it's analysis, it's opinions, and it goes on and on and on. And I got it, it doesn't interest me at all. It does not interest me reading the Talmud one bit because we have this, and this is sufficient. It, it really is. If we read this and we study this, we don't need all of that other stuff, even indirectly. Once in a while, it may be interesting that, oh, you know, this talks about what they did at this feast in Jerusalem at that time. Maybe you want to know that, but I'm not going to go searching through the Talmud to find it. If I see a commentary that includes that and it looks relevant, maybe I'll cite it. But you're always in, it's necessary to say this is not in the Bible. This is something that is somebody's comment on it, and you never hold that on the level of Scripture, ever. Never. You get a bone in that. Oh, yeah, you can get a bone in there, all right. That's exactly right. Give the dog a bone. That is exactly right. Choke on <laughs> Yeah, and you will. If you get into it too much, you will. Um, through Paul's observations and by citing the Scriptures, it is verifi verifiable that this state of blessedness that David was writing about can be obtained because David both received it and spoke of it, okay? David was a man under the law the law which included circumcision as one of its signs of the covenant between God and his people. What's another one of the signs? You got circumcision, there's another one. Sign between God and his people. This shall be a sign between you and me. Sabbath. The Sabbath, that's another, that's exactly right. It is a sign between God and his people, okay? So now Paul asks an obvious question. Does this blessedness that David just has been writing about, does this blessedness 
then come upon the circumcised only. Okay? Because he's speaking to Jews. He's making an argument, as we've seen in all these, these past chapters of Romans. He's speaking to Gentiles, and then he introduces the Jews, and he makes these logical arguments. Does his blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? The question is important because if it is only upon the circumcised, then anyone outside of the law will never, never be free from the sin guilt that they bear. It will never happen, okay? If the law is a means to an end, then no person outside of the law can ever be freed from sin guilt. All sins committed will, in fact, be imputed to them. There would be no hope. Everybody got that? If, if, the, if the blessedness that David is writing about is from the law, then that means it's only from the law and nobody outside of it, okay? Does this blessedness then come upon the uncircumcised also? That's Paul's next question. If it does, then there is hope for the world at large and not just those in the nation of Israel and who had been circumcised, okay? If it can be outside of the law, then it can pertain to people that are outside of the law, those who are not circumcised. In order to demonstrate that this blessed state does, in fact, come upon those outside of the law, Paul will now reintroduce who? Abraham. Was Abraham under the law? No. No, he was 430 years before the law when his promise, the promise was made to him. Why would he do this? Why would Paul reintroduce Abraham again? What? The patriarch. He's the patriarch. Abraham was the father of circumcision. He was the father of circumcision. <laughs> circumcision came before the law. It came through Abraham, right? And he's not under the law. So Paul is making a logical argument to refute the Jews' arguments and that guy on Facebook today to refute his arguments that the blessedness only comes by observing God's law, by observing God's Torah. It's masterful stroke, which he has done, and that guy completely missed the ball, completely. And I said to him, I, the last thing I said is I sure hope that I didn't even say it to him. He was already blocked. I said, I hope the guy finds Jesus. I did tell him that before I blocked him, though. I said, either you're in Christ or you're under the law, and the two are incompatible. And that's when he came back with his second really snotty comment, and I just said, that's it. But, um, um, hello, how are you? Um, okay, so, in order to demonstrate that this blessed state does, in fact, come upon those outside the law, he introduces Abraham. Why would he do this? Abraham was the father of circumcision. What could it be about Abraham's justification that will in turn give hope to the non-circumcised world. He was justified before he was saved. That's right. Or stay tuned for the exciting details, as I say there. Okay. Let me give you a life application. We'll go on to verse 10. When things look hopeless and every exit is blocked, remember that God is fully capable of rescuing you from trials. Those things that you may have overlooked are already known to him. So trust that his plan is greater than your time of testing. Stand in confidence of knowing that his hand is upon you and will guide you to broad places. Okay, verse 410. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. Okay, exactly. I bet yours has an exclamation point it after does. it, doesn't it? Mine doesn't. Mine needs an exclamation point because that is an exclamatory statement. It says, um, how was it then accounted when he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not well circumcised, but... Well, uncircumcised. It's, it, it's anticlimactic without the exclamation point. The NIV got that one right. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Okay, verse 410. Paul has shown as clearly as could be done, absolutely as clearly as possible, that righteousness comes from apart from the law. 
okay, and that it is granted by faith alone. He's already told us this. Noting this, Paul continues to make his address to those who would still consider the law, like that guy this morning, as a means to an end. His question, questions are meant to dispel the notion once and forever. How was it? Meaning the blessedness of being declared righteous, noted in the previous verses, how was it accounted? Okay. In other words, where or when did this declaration originate? That's the question. Where or when did this declaration originate? In follow-up, he asks, while he was circumcised or while he was uncircumcised? And we all know the answer already because we've read the book. This is an immensely important question because Jews don't think this issue through. They say, I'm circumcised, therefore I am righteous. And they don't stop and think the issue through that Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised. Mm -hmm. Okay, if it was after circumcision, then circumcision may, we wouldn't know for certain, but it may have a bearing on that declaration of his righteousness, right? Mm -hmm. we, we, it may be obvious or it may not be obvious, but it certainly may be one way or another. This then might mean that this same declaration could be available only to those who are circumcised. And if so, then anyone outside of the law would be in the same state that they were always in. As I asked about David, was he writing the blessedness? Was it for only people under the law or people outside of law? If you're outside of the law and it was after Abraham's circumcision, then that means it could be that everybody outside of the law is out. They can never be forgiven of the sin debt that they bear. But, oh, um, they would be alienated from God. They would be strangers to the promise. But Paul's answer is a note of relief to those outside. And it is one which comes directly from an analysis of Scripture itself. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. It's like exclamation, 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 and then a couple more. Absolutely, Abraham was declared righteous long before the law, not just before he was circumcised, but long before the law was ever, ever introduced into the stream of humanity. Abraham was declared righteous in Genesis 15, verse 6. He simply believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was not until Genesis 17 that the sign, circumcision, the sign was introduced. And this was many long years later, and it had no bearing on his state before God at all. None. He was already declared righteous. God said, now I want you to have this sign. This sign is going to be for this reason. And he explained it. And he said, you know, later, if they're not circumcised, then they're to be cut off from the family and all that. But it had no bearing on his declaration of righteousness. Okay. The answer is that it was an outward sign of the change in relationship. And it was intended for him and his descendants afterwards to remember that relationship and live in a manner worthy of it. And if they didn't have the sign, they were to be cut off because they weren't living in a manner worthy of that relationship because it's part of what he asked them to do. So the sign itself is indicating that I'm willing at least to come to this point in obedience and then everything else will follow after that. If you're not willing to take the initial step, then everything else will not naturally follow. Okay, so the outward sign was a means of validating what had occurred. Abraham was declared righteous, this validates it. It had no bearing on what happened, but it gave him the memory of and the assurance in that act. As an example to grasp this, let's consider a war hero, okay? He's involved in a great act which saves many lives, 
and which is the epitome, the absolute epitome of braveness and heroism. Anybody think of a, uh, somebody that uh, uh, was given the Medal of Honor? I'm thinking of a movie star. Come on. Audie, uh, Audie Murphy, right? There you go. They even did a movie about him. You never heard of Audie Murphy? Watch the movie about him and you'll love it. He was way decorated in World War II. One brave guy. I think I think he, it's been a long time ago. I don't remember. Just type in movie about Audie Murphy. And I think it was he charged a uh, uh, tank himself or something. Anyway, he, he was he, it was very brave. It's been many years since I watched it, but that's who comes to mind. Okay, he's involved in a great act which saves many lives and which is considered the epitome of braveness and heroism. Everyone knows it and calls him a hero. I'll give you another one because I'm Air Force. Uh, Air Force person that received the Medal of Honor is a guy named John Levito. Okay, anybody know what the phosphorus grenades are that they throw out of airplanes to light up the sky for the people to fight war? They're in Vietnam, they're down there fighting as dark, and so they drop these phosphorus um, lights out of there. And they were like a phosphorus bomb. As soon as it went off, it went out, and the, the whole world would light up. It was like daytime, okay? And they were, he was in this, this cargo aircraft with all of this phosphorus stuff that they were using to illuminate the battlefield, and they were hit. Oh. And one of them exploded. And John Levito took this. Now, this is burning metal. This will incinerate human tissue. As soon as you ever get something that's uh, like a, uh, a match on you, and it burns, and it goes in, this is much worse. This is burning metal. He took it, and he held it to his body, and he got it off the airplane, saved everybody on that airplane. Okay, he suffered the rest of his life. He had to be medically retired, and uh, he, survived. But, uh, he survived it. And so he was given the, he's, he's one of the great heroes of the U.S. Air Force because of what he did. And uh, there's something about the uh, Medal of Honor is that if you have that, when you are in the service and you come to a superior, you have to do what? Salute. You salute them. If you're enlisted, you must salute an officer. Officers, the, the lower ranking always salutes the higher ranking. If a car with a staff insignia is on it, drives by, you must stop, come to attention, and salute that car, right? One exception in the military is the person that is given the Medal of Honor, the general officer must salute him. Every person salutes the Medal of Honor winner. And so he was one of the distinct people in the U.S. Air Force. Very few that got it in the Air Force. You know, uh, Iwo Jima, many people got it, and Marines and Army and... Uh, but uh, anyway, just so you know, this is something like that. This is a war hero that's done something like that. Everyone knows it. They call him a hero. This is equivalent to Abraham's faith and God's recognition of it. You're a hero. You're declared righteous. After the act, the hero's commander submits him for an award. The award goes through the ranks and arrives at the president of the United States desk. The president approves it. It is the Congressional Medal of Honor, the highest military award that one can receive, Right? The award is then officially presented to the hero on the one-year anniversary of his act. Did the presentation of the award have any bearing on the accomplishment of his act? No. No, none. He had the burns all over his body a year earlier, and it had nothing to do. If he never got that award, which many people that did many brave things did not get their awards, that maybe they should have because of the color of their skin or because of the, the unit they were in or whatever reason, or so he did something that nobody even knew about. It doesn't have any effect on the act itself, none. When the president bestows that Medal of Honor on him, he already, the act is done, it's behind him, okay? So it, what does it do though? What does presenting him with its recognition? It validates that act. It says, we acknowledge that you have done this 
and the general officer now backs up and salutes John Leviteau. Imagine that. I am now acknowledging that he has done that. That is what the badge of circumcision is, okay? The award was given as a sign and a confirmation or a validation of the significance of the deed, but it in no way changes what occurred. Those scars will never leave his body until the day he dies. It'll never change that. This is Paul's point. The circumcision in which Jews boast has no bearing at all on what was previously granted. None, right? You can say, well, this was my grandfather's Medal of Honor uh, badge. Can anybody salute you because you have that badge in your possession? No. If you don't live up to the, the, uh, the <coughs> ideal of the, the badge, it means nothing. You have to live up to the ideal of the badge for it to mean anything. We're getting the horse before the cart when we say, I'm circumcised and therefore I'm righteous. It's completely the opposite. Okay, this is Paul's point. The circumcision in which they boast has no bearing on what was previously granted. If the war hero's descendants carry around his award, which I just said, and boast in it, and yet they don't live a life worthy of the act of their father, then the award means less than nothing. In fact, it has become in them as if they weren't even a part of this noble man's family. And that's what Paul is the point he's making about the Jews there. They're saying, you're not even a part of the circumcision. Circumcision is of the heart. It's not of the flesh. Okay, and now, after more than a chapter of analysis and explanation, we can return to Paul's words at the end of chapter 2 and more fully understand what he meant. So we're going to go to 2, verse 25. And you can read, Jim, from verse 25 until 29. Think of what I just said. What? <laughs> yeah, 25 through 2, 25 through 29, and read it loudly. There we go. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision are the law, are the law are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from, but God. from God. Right? Think of what I just said about the Medal of Honor recipient. The righteousness comes first and then comes the award for the righteousness. And if anybody follows in that award and they do not live up to that ideal, then it's as if they're not even of that person's family. And your circumcision has become as if it is uncircumcision. And then Paul ends up, the very last thing he says, and circumcision is that of the heart and not in the spirit. And then he gives that pun that I mentioned, not in the letter whose praise, uh, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And the word praise, remember, in the Jewish mind is Judah or Yehuda, which is, means praise. So in other words, Jew, which comes from the word Judah, is being used as a pun. You're not even a Jew unless you are circumcised in the heart, okay? And if you're circumcised in the flesh and not living up to the ideal, then it means nothing. It means less than nothing. As a matter of fact, it's an act of robbery, okay? When you say that I'm righteous because I'm circumcised and you don't live it, it's an act of robbery. Okay, so verse, um, oh, we'll go on. Hang on here. Turn the page. Life application. Don't let anyone steal the prize from you, 
by insisting that you adhere to some precept found under the law like that guy this morning. He insists that you observe God's Torah when he isn't doing it either. He's not in any way observing God's Torah. If he was, what would he be doing? Getting circumcised. Well, not just that, but he'd also be... Going to Jerusalem for the sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> Even beyond that. All of those things are explicit in the law, but what does it say in uh, Deuteronomy? I will send a prophet and he will speak my words so even the law itself points to jesus yeah. if you don't listen to him you'll be cut off from your people right so even the law itself ultimately points to jesus so if you are saying you're observing the law but not uh observing the grace of jesus christ which fulfilled the law then you're not observing the law he's got himself stuck in a, a, bo a, a box with that one circumcision dietary restrictions dress codes no jewelry right dress codes, etc., that are found under the law or that come out of your preacher's head, right, only separate you further from God if you attempt to be justified by those things. And I, I don't remember the email exactly, but I think he was saying that, you know, am I saved if I don't do these things or am I not saved or something? You're saved. Either you believe in Christ and that, that he was resurrected from the dead and you're saved or you don't believe that and you're not saved. And all those other things have nothing to do with your salvation, right? Stand firm on the fact that Abraham was declared righteous by faith alone, and this is how you also are so declared, by faith alone, no works at all. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing good things afterward. But the question is, when people say you're not doing good works, my question is always the same. What works? What works? They're, oh, you talk to the Reformed theologians, Table Talk Magazine, they always saying you need to do good works after salvation to prove that you were saved. What works? Tell me what works now. We'll prove that I'm saved. Because I read that time and time and time again in the Table Talk Magazine. What works? Right. What, what's going to prove that I'm saved? There's Nothing only one work. Works. Faith. Works after salvation is fruit. That's right. It's but fruit, it's but it doesn't prove anything. Right. It doesn't prove anything. The only work that is a work that is acceptable is a work of faith. So if I'm doing anything in the name of the Lord, it must be a work of faith and it must be acceptable. But if they say you're not doing anything fruitful for the Lord, how do you know? Yeah. I drive down the road every day. I go to work and I talk to the Lord all the way to my job and I listen to the Bible online, those are works as far as God's concerned because I have faith that what I'm hearing is the Word of God. I have faith that I'm speaking to Him and I'm having a relationship with Him. I guarantee you that those works are far better than somebody that gives money to an orphanage in Africa and doesn't believe in the message of the Bible. I guarantee you. So my question is always the same to people that say you're not proving your salvation by works. What works? Your commitment. Your commitment to God through Jesus Christ, and that is it. Whatever you do in and for and with Jesus is a work of faith, and it is rewardable, and nothing else is. That's exactly right, your commitment. Okay, so um, are we on another one? Yeah, 11. verse 411. Wow, three, three verses already. Oh, no, my gosh. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in mm. order that the righteous might be credited to them. Okay. I'm going to read that again. Yeah, I, I, That's okay. And he it's a little bit different here, not much, but and he received the sign of circumcision. This is Abraham receiving the sign, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. He had the faith while still uncircumcised. And Paul then equates that to you and me. Okay. We're Gentiles. He says that he 
Abraham might be the faith of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised. Okay, Jews are already circumcised from birth, right? They have to believe in addition to that or their circumcision means nothing. But if you're uncircumcised and you believe, you're just like Father Abraham. That's what he's saying right here. That might be in, that the righteousness might be imputed to them also, just as it was to him. Okay, the previous verse that we looked at reminded us of what scripture proclaims. Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised long before. To ensure that point couldn't be misunderstood, God waited many, you know what? That's a very good point. I forgot that I typed that. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I read that and it's like, duh, think of it. If he was declared righteousness in Genesis 15, 6, and we'll say he's, I, I, I don't remember right off the top of my head, but we'll say he's 90 years old at the time. Maybe he was 85, whatever. He wasn't 75 because that was in Genesis 13. Anyway, we'll say he was 85 years old, okay? And he was declared righteous. And God wanted to tie that in with circumcision. What would he have done? He would have said, go down and get circumcised today, mm -hmm. right? right? He didn't. He waited a long, long time. I, I can't believe I typed that and then I forgot it. Anyway, um, the, the sign, um, let me read that again. Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised long before. To ensure that the point couldn't be misunderstood, God waited many long years before giving him the sign of circumcision intentionally. It was probably, well, it's longer than Ishmael's, um, uh, Ishmael had not been conceived. Oh, okay. And Ishmael was 13 when he was Circumcised, so it was at least thirteen right. years, and it was probably much longer. Well, we he, don't know. He was in his hundreds. He What's was that? He was yeah, like Abraham 100. was a hundred years old. So that's, that's right. That's fifteen years. Well, later, I, right? I I just said eighty-five. I, I said that's an example. Just, I didn't say he was. Mm -hmm. We know that Abraham. That I'm sorry. That Isaac was Ishmael was thirteen when right. when they were both circumcised. So we can backdate because he wasn't even conceived yet. He had to first be given the um, given uh, uh, Hagar. He got Hagar pregnant. Nine months later, you have um, Ishmael. So it's at least 14 years, mm -hmm. at least, and it could be more. All right. The, the dating in Genesis 15 is not precise, but it's at least 15 years. And God did that on purpose is to say these two events are completely disconnected. That's the point there. Okay. okay. So um, God waited many long years before the circumcision. This sign is a seal of the righteousness of faith that he had while still uncircumcised, according to Paul. That is the seal. It's the seal, and it came many years later. It would be like the guy, you know, once in a while you'll see somebody from the Vietnam War that gets a Medal of Honor nowadays, and the old guy walks up and the president pins it on him. It's a seal. It came many years later, unlike somebody that might have gotten one six or eight or ten, year, ten months later. This guy may have had to wait 25 years, and they discovered through people saying, you know, that guy was a real hero, and somebody says, well, why wasn't he ever put in for that? And somehow the word gets up to the president, and he gives him one, all right? That is the same thing as what's happened here. It didn't change the fact that that guy did it back in the Vietnam War. What changed is that he now has the seal of it, okay? And people will now honor him in a different way. But God waited all this time for a reason. The sign did nothing to further justify Abraham in his sight. Nothing. By this picture, we derive directly from Scripture, we learn that it is God who defines the parameters and establishes the basis by which a person is declared righteous. God determines it, not us. And this is shown to be by faith and faith alone. He's set the parameter, he's made the declaration, and he waits a long time in between the two to make sure that we don't miss the fact that it is by faith. He set the parameters, 
And because he's done that, God doesn't change. I, the Lord your God, do not change. You are declared righteous by one thing and one thing only, by faith. Okay? He gave the law to show that the law is actually contrary to faith, along with about 25 other points, but that is one of them. Go ahead. You're talking about works. Yes. This is the work of God. Yes, John 6.29. Go ahead. I think you're right. <laughs> of course I'm right. Go ahead. <laughs> Read it loud. And you're humble, too. <laughs> <laughs> this is the work of God that you believe in him who has sent you. Believe and faith are... That, that's right. Believe and faith are synonymous in that case. They are synonymous. John, why do I know that? Because that's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Okay. I, I did a whole sermon on grace based around that one, that one verse. Wonderful, wonderful word. This is the, the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. This is the work of God. Okay. It's God's work, and you are accepted by God because of doing that thing. Believe. Okay. So, so yes. So, okay. With that in mind, okay. A lot of times I'll hear Christians say that, um, okay, well, what about all the Jews before Christ came? Are they all going to hell? Or they're not, you know. No, they were. Like, it depends. It's, they can't uh, stick with the law. They, well, can't, they can't. No, no, no. Well, go back to, go back to right. David. What did David say? Blessed is the man who the Lord does not impute righteousness. Forgiven. That's right. Sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Okay. So even under the law, it was? Awesome. Yeah. Believe. But it was by? Faith. 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 That's right. And where did that blessedness come from? It didn't come from the sacrifice itself. It came from faith in the sacrifice. In other words, when they ask about the Jews that didn't believe in Jesus at the time, it was in faith in God's provision that was coming. It was a faith in the Messiah because the Messiah was promised all along, right. all along. And Jesus said that in John chapter 6. He says, um, you know, John 5, you search the scriptures and they are what testify of me. Mm. But you are not willing to come to me to have life, right? That was Sunday sermon just last week. He is the one that gives the life that was promised in Leviticus 18 verse 5. If the man who does these things will live by them. I'm the one that will do those things. So it was always faith, always under the law. Nobody could meet the demands of the law, but God still covered their sins on the Day of Atonement, which was completely a day of faith. It was no works at all, completely no works. It was only faith, and that's the only thing that saved them year to year. But yes, the saints of the Old Testament are saved in the same Messiah that we are saved in. They were looking forward to him. We were looking back on it. But what's that? That's what I was going to say. There you go. <laughs> so so that same theory does not work today since Christ has already come. Right. That's right. And no Jew is saved through, apart from Jesus. Yeah. Nothing. Today nothing. is like, okay, yeah. They must come through Christ. They must come through Christ. And if they do not, they are not saved in no way, shape, or form. And that's John Hagee. That's what John Hagee teaches. He teaches dual covenantalism. Yeah. The Jews are saved by observance of Torah. And he has done more damage to the cause of Christ than anybody I can think of. He's because also Jewish, is he not? No, he's not. He's a Gentile. But he, he, he has done so much damage to the cause of Christ because these Jews believe, because he's told them, that it's Christian teaching that you are saved by a Torah observance. And you don't, that you're saved by the blood of Jesus through observing the Torah. And that has condemned, I can't tell you how many people that listen to that guy and say, well, he said it must be true. It, it totally, totally false. That is a complete false, that is a heresy. You are saved solely by faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. No Torah observance will get you one inch closer to God. I don't care how much you do it. Without Christ, you are not saved. Jewish so. people brought him to town here. 
four or five years. Oh, yeah, because they love to hear that. They love to have their ears tinkled about that. Mm -hmm. Oh, we're saved by Torah observance when they're not even observing the Torah. It's a terrible heresy that man teaches. Terrible. Um, yes, sir. Uh, I don't want to digress a little bit. That's okay. So why in the millennium are there going to be all these sacrifices? Okay. There, there are different opinions on it. He's talking about Ezekiel 40 through 47, I think, or maybe 48. There's a, what's called the Millennial Temple, which some people say that that's an ideal temple. It's not even really the Millennial Temple. I don't know if I agree with that or not, but the sacri if, if that is the Millennial Temple that we are talking about, and like I say, you're going to get different commentators which will <laughs> agree or disagree on that, but even if there are sacrifices, what would they be doing? If there is a millennial temple with sacrifices, what would they be? Commemoration. That's exactly right. They would be commemorating what Christ did. They would not be effective for salvation. They would be commemorative in nature. Okay? The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So why would they even bother with it in the, in the millennial temple unless it had a completely different purpose? Because the Bible's already said that those bulls and goats that they're sacrificing in the temple cannot take away sin. They must be commemorative. When is this supposed to occur? Um, it, it just, it, there's a temple that is described in Ezekiel. Okay, I'm just going to go there really quickly. It's a good diversion. It's a good question. It's not in well, any way... Christ is going to build that too in Ezekiel. Right, he's, he's going to sit in a temple. Six, That's yeah. right. He's going to sit in a temple in Jerusalem. He's going to rule from there. It says the law will go forth from Zion. He is going to be here physically on earth, okay? It says um, uh, he's got this temple, and it starts describing it, the threshold and the gateway, and it's six cubits here, and it's there, there, and it goes on, the measurements of the windows, and the vestibule here, and it goes, there's singers out there, and it says, inside were hooks, a handbreadth wide, fastened all around, and the flesh of the sacrifices was on the table. You got sacrifices, and the priest can walk in this way, and he has to walk out that way, and all these different things, right? All of these things that it says for just, it's, to me, there are two very difficult portions of scripture, very difficult for me to read. One of them is the book of Proverbs that is not in the um, paragraph format. It's in the, uh, what do you call it, couplets. Uh, this and this, this and this. And right. it's just hard to read because there's so many of them. My brain doesn't pick up on that. The second thing that's very hard for me to read is this portion of Ezekiel because it's, it's like an architect is describing something. One word at a time, one word at a time, giving you details. And I'm thinking, oh, I, I don't think like an architect. Whereas if you had an architect read this, he'd be like, wow, this is great. It's saying this and he can make a mental image of what is being made. Having said that, okay, it has a purpose and it is here for a reason. Some people say that it is an ideal temple that would have existed if the Jews had returned to the land and performed properly and accepted Christ. Other people say that it is this, and there's about three or four different interpretations. The most popular interpretation for dispensationalists is that it is a real temple that Christ will really sit in during the millennium. But it has a problem because it mentions sacrifices. And if it mentions sacrifices, what's the point? He's the end of all sacrifices, right? They must be commemorative in nature because even in the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. And therefore, if they can't take away sins, why bother? It's to thank the Lord for what he has done and to continue to honor him with those sacrifices. That makes the most sense. But like I say, there are several other interpretations. If you want, I'll brush up on it. We'll go over it sometime. But the, regardless of what it is, and I would say it's a millennial temple, and here's why. I'm going to take you really quickly. We get to the end of the description of the temple. And I'm, because it's a diversion, we might as well do it. He asked about it. Verse 47 suddenly changes 
tacked a little bit. This is still the temple. But it says, then he brought me back to the door of the temple and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple south of the altar. Okay, the right side is the south. If this is a temple, because we're facing east and west, that's east, that's west. So the right side is south. Okay, the water's coming from under the right side of the temple south of the altar. Okay, and then it flows east. Okay, I'm going to come to a point with this. He brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with a line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits and he brought me through waters, the waters, the water came up to my ankles, okay? A thousand cubits is, we'll say it's a, a cubit is a little longer than a foot, but we'll say it's um, 1,500 feet, okay? Just for yeah, conceptual okay. purposes. Yeah, conceptual purposes, okay. So, and uh, when the man, um, uh, he measured again 1,000 and brought me through the waters and the waters came up to my knees. And he again measured 1,000 and brought me up through the water, came up to my waist. And he measured 1,000 and it was a river that I could not cross for the water was too deep, the water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. Now, what does that sound like? Does anybody know what, somewhere else where it says that? I thought it sounded like heaven. Okay, there you go. I'm getting to a point. That's right. Revelation says that there are trees with the 12 roots, 12 months and all that. Okay, so it's sounding the same, but it's not. Then you're going to see a difference. It says, um, uh, the bank of the river, when I returned there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. Then he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters the sea, meaning the Dead Sea, okay? All right, now, what is under Jerusalem? What body of water is under Jerusalem? Gihon Springs. Gihon Springs. Where is Gihon also mentioned? Is that the... Genesis, Genesis. The four rivers four of, rivers, right, 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 you've got right, the Hedekel, right. you've got the Parat, you've got the Gihon, and you've got the, um, Euphrates. Uh, the Euphrates, thank you, that's Parat, Euphrates is Parat, so the Euphrates, the, uh, uh, the Hedekel is Tigris, you've got the Gihon, and you've got uh, one other, um, anyway, um, you've got the four rivers, but the Gihon is specifically said to be under Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, you've got this supposed millennial temple, which I would agree with, there's water coming out. What is water in the Bible? What does it signify? It's life. Life. The word of God. The word is life. Okay? So there's life coming out of the temple. Guess where Jesus is? He's in the temple. Life is coming out. Now, we're going to go on, and I'm going to get to a point with this. Uh, because he asked, we're diverting from Romans. That's one reason why we're doing this. Then it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the rivers go, will live. So there's life in this river. Okay? There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there for they will be healed. What's down in the Dead Sea right now? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing lives. It is dead. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. The water goes in. It's 1,300 feet below sea level, the lowest spot on earth, and everything dies. Okay? There's only death there. So but it's... that the, the uh, sacrifices that were just made in the temple where this is flowing from also survived? I don't know what you're talking about. Well, okay. This is coming from the temple. Right. Where they were just doing sacrifices. Right. With Jesus sitting there. Right. Water's life. Okay. You know, sacrifice wouldn't last too long if they could 
suddenly spring to life. Like oh no, I, I th those are disconnected. Okay. Yeah, that, yeah, Sorry. no, that, that's separate. The sacrifices are one thing, but this is what are coming out from the temple. It's giving us a picture of something. Now remember, I've already taken you back to Genesis chapter two. The the waters in paradise. Right. The okay. one river turns into four headwaters. Okay, right. and there's life there. Man is kicked out of Eden. So keep thinking about this because we're going to get to a point. It says, um, and this is just my interpretation. I want you to take it with a grain of salt until you think it through because I've never read any commentaries on this passage. It's just me thinking it through. Uh, it, it shall be that, uh, oh, everything uh, is alive will live where the river goes. It shall be, verse 10, that fishermen will stand by it from En Gedi to En Eglaim. They will be places for spreading their nets. So there's fish there and they're spreading their nets out there. The fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the Great Sea. What is the Great Sea? Mediterranean. The Mediterranean. And what kind of water is the Mediterranean? Salt. salt. So the water is going into the salt sea and it's mixing and it's becoming a salt-bodied ocean. Okay? There's life there, but it's salt. It's mixed. Okay? And that's important because it's not just fresh water like the, the uh, Galilee. Okay? Galilee is fresh water, tilapia and all that other stuff. Down here, it's going to be the same fish. They're going to import fish from the Great Sea. They're going to put them there. It has to be because they don't just walk across the land to get there. Somehow they got there. But it is the same fish as in the Great Sea. Okay? But its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. Okay? Now, I'm going to read a little more, but think of that verse. Think of why is that in there? All along the bank, along the bank of the river, on this side and that, it will grow all kinds of trees uh, used for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. Just as she said, it sounds like the Book of Revelation. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. The water is life; it's causing those things to live. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves will be medicine. Just as it says in Revelation, for healing of the nations. Thus says the Lord God: These are the borders. It goes okay. So that's good enough. What is that picturing? What is that telling us? I can only come to one conclusion with this. This is just without having studied the Hebrew, just reading it and thinking on it. It's telling us that you have the Garden of Eden. The waters are pure, there's life, and then all of a sudden sin introduces into the world and there's a fracture. The waters are no longer there, but there's this spring thousands of years later suddenly reintroduced. I think it's in the book of uh, Samuel or Kings. Um, let me read you where it is. To, it might be one Kings. Hang on, really quickly. This won't take long, and I'm doing this from memory. So uh, the doctor got me onto this. It's his fault. Blame him. Um, uh, Gihon. That's all we need to do is look for the word Gihon. Oh, and look at. I hate this autocorrect thing because. Um, yeah, right. G I H. Forty-seven of, of uh, Ezekiel here. It says the waters will become fresh. You said it was going to become salt. No, 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 no. It's fresh. But the fish are from the Great Sea. That's a salt body. Uh, so it's mixed. The water is fresh going in. Okay. But it's it's it has to be a mixture. Okay. The waters are fresh going in, but the salt has been there all these thousands of years, and the end of it is left completely to salt. It okay. will not be healed. Okay? Here it is. One Kings, um, Genesis 2, 13. This is the name of the second river is Gihon. Here are the four rivers. Um, I, I, I uh, want to tell you what they are. Um, you've got the... Um, the name of the first is Pishon. That's the one I couldn't remember. Okay, that goes around Havilah, where there's gold. And the second is, uh, and the land is good, blah, blah, blah. Okay, the second is Gihon, all right? The name of the third is Hedekel, which is the Tigris. And the third is the Parat, which is the Euphrates, okay? So you've got the four rivers, okay? And I, when I did those sermons, tied them in with the four Gospels. But we won't get into that today. But you've got the Gihon. 
1 Kings verse 133. This is thousands of years later. The king also said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, read, ride on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. Gihon. Right? And there it is. So you've got the Gihon and we know that the Gihon is in Jerusalem. We know that Jerusalem is to the west. Iran, Persia, and uh, the, the, um, where Babylon is, is to their east. You have to go north to get there, but it's to the east, okay? There's a picture. When the people are disobedient from the Lord, they get exiled to the east, just as Adam and Eve were exiled to the east, right? So you've got this, this picture that's being made. We saw that in the book of Jonah, okay? You've got this going on. You've got the, the paradise waters at the beginning. All of a sudden, they disappear, but there's this spring, still in Jerusalem, picturing where Eden is, okay? And all of a sudden you have, in the millennial reign, you've got this water coming out under the throne, which is Gihon. It's the same body of water, and it's going out, and it's going down to what is dead, to the Dead Sea, and the waters start to be healed, all right? It's fresh water going down, but we know it's salt down there. It has to be because it's the fish of the Great Sea, okay? So there's still not total purity, and at the end, the waters are not healed, or it says, let me read that to you again. It says, um, oh, I've got to get back to, uh, uh. anyway, Ezekiel 47, it says, but its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. Now let's go to Revelation really quickly. Mine says will not become fresh. Will not become fresh. That's right. Okay. So uh, it says here in um, um, the last page of the Bible, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. Jerusalem, same thing, same idea. This is the new Jerusalem, it's the heavenly Mount Zion, in the middle of the street, and on either side of the river, there was the tree of life. So you have eternal life there, because we're going to take away the, let us take away the tree of life, lest man put out his hand and eat of it and live forever, right? Okay? So the same tree that was at the beginning, which is not mentioned here, but we know that the tree of life is Christ. Remember they threw the tree into the water and it healed the water at the waters of Marah after they crossed the Red Sea? Okay, um, so the uh, the 12 uh, fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and there shall be no more curse. The salt water is accursed. The, they're left to marshes, okay? The marshes at the end are not healed. Think of that as a curse, okay? And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there, blah, blah, blah. Okay, we have the, the river. There is no curse at all. There's nothing left to salt. There's nothing left that is not healed. So what do you have a picture of? You have a picture of paradise. You have a picture of paradise offered in the, the uh, millennial reign of Christ. Will people die? Yes. It says in Isaiah 60 that a person that dies at 100 years old, it will be as if he is accursed. I heard somebody give a commentary on the Feasts of Israel today or yesterday while I was listening to it, and he said that there's no death in the millennial period. There's death in the millennial period. It says that if a person says something about uh, something, you're to stone him, okay? The, the parents will take him out and kill him himself or something like that. Anyway, it's just something in my mind. But there will be death during the millennium. At the end of the millennium, there is what? A battle called... Yeah. Gog Magog, the same battle that we're going to go through very soon. Gog and Magog, and the people come down against the holy city, and the Lord destroys them. And after that, everything is restored. This is the purpose of dispensations. Every single dispensation, and we went through that. Remember I went through all the dispensations? I think it was during the book of Romans, but we can do it again. We can't do it today, I don't think. But um, uh, you've got the dispensation of innocence, and we blew it. 
we get the dispensation of conscience, and we blew it. Each time that there is us blowing it, there is judgment, and then a new term is made. Okay, we blew it, and he says, okay, you've got conscience, you're out here, and he, he gives them certain things, they blow it, and then after 1,656 years, it's so bad that God destroys the world. There's the judgment. After that comes the uh, promise to Noah. Okay, I'll never destroy the world by flood again. All right, I'm going to do this and this and this. That's the dispensation of government. And what happens? We blow it. Chapter 11 of Genesis, the Tower of Babel, judgment. He spreads the world. The lip and tongue of the people is changed, and the people are spread around the world. Okay, so we blow it. There's judgment, and then there's another promise. Along comes Abraham. Here comes the dispensation of promise. Abraham's given a promise. All right, go through that. We get into, after that, from that line comes the dispensation, that's right, of the law, okay? There is a promise, life. If you do, the, the man who does these things will live by them, okay? So you can get life from it, but they don't, and there is judgment, right? They're exiled. They're brought back into the land, and they're given a promise. He's coming, right? They blow it again. They're dispersed again. They go around the world, okay? The dispensation of grace, all right? We are given the grace of Jesus Christ, and we blow it. Look at the churches today. They are completely apostate. 99% of the churches of the world have blown it. All of the goodness of Jesus Christ has been thrown away into the garbage can of works and of perversion and of everything else. And there will be judgment, the tribulation period. And after that will come, after the tribulation will come the millennium. Christ himself will sit on a throne. God incarnate will rule from Jerusalem and man will blow it. Blow it. God versus Magog, the Lord will have to destroy all wickedness. Every dispensation is given to show that we are utterly, completely dependent on God. Fresh water in the Garden of Eden, the four Gospels are pictured there. In comes Christ. We have Christ sitting on the throne. There's fresh water, but it's still tainted down at the end. There's still a curse because man has not been completely glorified with what God is going to give him. We're still not completely dependent on Christ, but in Revelation, all things are restored back to Eden. That's why it is very specific that there is fresh water going in, but there's the fish from the great sea, which he didn't need to say. He could have said there were fish in there and just said, you assume that they're freshwater fish. They're not. They're saltwater fish, and he did that for a reason, and he even went further to say that the waters are not healed. He, water is, you all said it, life, life. In, in Eden, or I'm sorry, in the heavenly Mount Zion, it will be just like Eden. There will be only life. There will never be any curse like the, the salt waters. God is giving us a picture of what's going on. That's why I believe that it is a millennial temple, and I believe that it, that analysis is correct, but the sacrifices are commemorative. They are saying that this points back to what Christ did, because we never want to forget that. I said that last week in the, was it last week in the sermon? I said, we always want to look forward but we also want to look back. It was during the prophecy update because people always want to look forward with prophecy and, oh, this sign is going to prove that the rapture is on this date. Forget that. We want to look back on what Christ did and we want to revel in that and we want to live for today for Christ, not worrying about whether the rapture is going to happen tomorrow or a year from now or 10 years from now. It is going to happen. If you focus on 23 December of or September of 2017 as the day of the rapture, what are you going to be doing for Christ in between then? Not very much, right? Our job is to learn about this Lord and to focus on him and to do things for him until he comes to occupy 
to not be like people that sit and watch 20 rapture or prophecy videos a week and don't do anything else. They don't learn any doctrine because what we just went through in Ezekiel, I've never heard anybody talk on ever, not one time. But that is what I think it is telling us, is that there is a time coming when even with Christ sitting on the throne and the healing waters going out of that throne, because he is the giver of life, men will still choose wrong and they will still blow it. That's how utterly dependent we are on Christ. So let's go on. Um, did we read 11? Yes. Okay, so I, that's right. I got to the first paragraph and then uh, the doctor introduced something. Sorry about that. Actually, I'm not. Thank you. I love that. Um, okay. Uh, we're on that trail. Okay. Over in, in, in the Revelation, it says the healing of the nations. Right. Why is there necessary? Why is healing necessary over there in heaven? The healing of the nation? Because we're the Goyim. We're the nations. We're the people of the world. And there is the healing of the nations. This is in heaven. It says, uh, this is heaven. Okay. And there's healing of the nations. It says, the fruit is for the healing of the nations. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know either. That's yeah. what I'm asking I, you. I, I would assume, I, you know, people say that in heaven we will have not have the ability to sin and we'll have this and that. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that in the Bible. I don't know what it is, but maybe it, it, we will. Now, hold on a second. We're going to be like him, First John says. Yeah, we will be like him. What does that mean? It means he was sinless and I'm going to be. Does it mean that we're going to be sinless, or does it mean that we will be like him in his divine, I, I mean, in his uh, nature, the body that he has? I, I find it, I, I'm not saying that we will sin in heaven. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a need for healing of the nations. What does that mean? It's got to mean something. I know. When I it says that we will be like him, we make the sudden leap that we could say, well, we're going to be like him, then we're going to be God. Well, you just said also Are we going to be God? Well, no, healing, okay, so being like him doesn't healing. have to mean that we're going to be this or this or this. Charlie, if there's healing, there's got to be sickness. That's right. There's something going on. Right, but just like with the waters coming out in Ezekiel and curing or, or curing the, uh, the Dead Sea, and right. it still gets corrupted by the soul. I mean, you know, it, not everyone's perfect. I mean, that's right. We're all and, not Jesus. And, and, like, that, you know, that's right. And, and, now, 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 think of what he just said, because if we are incapable of how do i say this you have to go back and you have to watch my genesis 1 1 1 2 and 1 3 sermons where i speak about anything that is not god is subject to what corruption. fault corruption you could say corruption but the word is fault first corinthians 15 says we're going to take off corruption and put on incorruption that's talking about our our nature this is a corruptible body did adam have an incorruptible body the answer is yes, because he could have lived forever. He had an incorruptible body, and yet he faulted. I think we think too much about what, if we are going to be like him in all ways, then we will be God, and we right, will and not be God. That will never happen, and therefore <laughs> anything that is not God can fault. There's no way around that. Go back and watch that sermon. I defend it there, and I'm not going to go through it right now because I can't remember all the finer points. Anything that is not, here's a perfect example. God makes Adam the perfect electrician. He will never fault to being an electrician, right? And I ask him, would you go build me a new dinner table? Is he capable of building a perfect dinner table? No, no because he's a perfect. Anything that is not God is susceptible to fault. And so when it says that we will be like him, people take that to unintended extremes. They go to this far, but they don't go this far. You say, well, we're going to be without sin, okay? I've made that, that mental conclusion. I'm going to be like him. That means I'm going to be without sin. Well, why don't you go a little farther and say, I'm going to be like him and I'm going to be God. 
Right. I'm not God and I never will be God. So if I'm not God, I am subject to fault. Right. That doesn't mean that I will fault. I'm not saying that we're going to sin. I'm not trying to say that. But we are subject to that. What does John 17 say? <laughs> that they could be one like us? Once again, you're making a leap to a point that you cannot make. Because if you say, I'm going to be this far, why don't you just take it all the way and say, I'm going to be God? Right? Are you going to be God? Let me ask no. you. There you go. No. Then why do you have to assume that you're going to go any further than just Jesus having... we're saved forever. You're we are saved forever. That's what the heaven. healing of the nations is for. Whatever that means, <laughs> we are subject to fault. That the, Fault is not sin. You have to understand, fault is not sin. You are subject to fault. If you are not God, you are... Go watch the sermon, and if you have a question after that, because you're going to get me, we're going to be talking about this all night long, and I'm not, you know, you have to, when you do a sermon, you have to brush up on it. But just because you are going to be like him, it does not mean that you're going to be exactly the way you think you're going to be like him. When a preacher says we're going to be without sin, it never says that in the Bible. It never says that. I would assume that that's true, but I'm not going to go that far. When it says that we will be like him, we're going to be given a body like him, well, what is his body like? It says we don't know right? But when we get it, we'll know, and we will be like him. Are we going to be him? No. No. So then obviously we're being like him doesn't mean that we are him. And if we're not him, then we are our individual person. Keep stepping it back. Don't take it to the extreme that you want. Keep taking it away from the extreme that you the want. The glory which you have given me, right. I have given them. Right. That and what is that glory? One, just as we are one. That's right. To the Father. We're going to be one, he says. You're missing the point of what I'm saying. You're arguing a point that doesn't exist. You're arguing a point that doesn't exist because we will not be God. We're Unless you're a Mormon, we're not going to be God. And didn't say we're going to be God. There you go. But you keep going back to that. That's what you're logically going to. You're saying, I'm going to be like this, but I'm not going to be like this. How do you know? He says, we don't know what we're going to be like. Paul said that, right? If we're going to possess his glory, we're going to have a body like his that will last forever. Don't take that to an unintended extreme, because once you do that, all of a sudden you have to take it to the next one. Don't ever take it to the next one, because that's what the Mormons did. They said, we are going to be gods. We are going to rule our own universe. Jesus was a man, and he became God, and we can't do that. We have to go back, not to the furthest extreme towards him, but the furthest extreme from him we and still be, be like him. him. We will be like him. I understand that. We will see him. You have a presupposition and it's stuck in your head and it shouldn't be. Don't let somebody's sermon that you heard 35 years ago dictate your theology. Let the Bible dictate your theology. If we are going to be like him, it doesn't mean that we are going to have all of his attributes. Okay? Like we are going to be like him. Like. That's right. right. We will share in his glory. No, he has given us his him. glory. We will share in it. We will be one with him. That doesn't mean that we will be him. Right. And it doesn't mean that we will have all of his attributes. You you brought it up. You said, what is the healing of the nations? There has to be a reason why that's in there. Right? But you just said you didn't know what it was. That's right. But I'm giving you an option. <laughs> I'm giving you an option because it's in there and it's there for a reason. Well, if what? the healing of the nations needs, if the nations need to be healed then that means that there is a reason, as she said, it says that the nations, it's for the healing of the nations, therefore the nations need to be healed. And that's on the last page of the Bible. That is on the last page of the Bible after we've already gone into the rapture, we've been glorified, and yet the nations need to be healed. I'm not here to debate that because it hasn't happened yet, but I'm also not going to discount that we could possibly have the ability to fault. 
Because anything that isn't God is subject uh, to I fall. Like that word possibly. Okay, very good. But Charlie, you know, but the difference here, and us being like him, he never ever sinned. That's right. We have. That's right, and we have the memory of that. We have all of the baggage that goes along with being who we are, and we will be. We will be always dependent on the grace of God. Always. I, I cannot believe that even in heaven we will not be dependent on the grace of God. And I never said that we would sin in heaven. I never said that. So don't go telling people I said that. I said that we have we have the possibility that we will be subject to fault. Because anything that is not God is not if if I am not God, then I can't know what is behind that planet. Okay? Or I can't know this or I can't know that. I could I'd be subject to fault because, of that. as I said during the sermon, I could cut down a tree to make a house, and that's a good thing. But when I cut down the, too many trees, the mudslide could come down and destroy the house. I don't have all of the information. That's not sin that the house got destroyed, but it is fault. Anything that I don't have all of the information for, and I don't have all of the information for, can result in fault. Okay? Sin is something that we live with in this life. We are covered our sins are covered by Christ, but we are subject to fault. We are subject to make mistakes, even if it's not sin. It happens all the time. And so whatever the healing of the nations means, it is something that we must accept that the Bible says that. The nations need healing, and that's what the leaves are for, and they will be there forever. So you tell me what that means. But I am not going to make the, the, the mental jump to the fact that we will be sinless until I am there and I know that that's true. I'm not going to make that mental jump because, like I said, if I'm going to go that far, I might as well go as far as saying, well, if I'm sinless, then I'm going to be just like Jesus. Then I must be deity. I must be a God. And like I said, that's what happens in people's theology until you come to the point where Joseph Smith says you're all going to be gods and you're going to rule your own universe. And people say, oh, well, that's what it says. We're going to be like Jesus. We can't do that. We want to move ourselves the furthest from it, not the closest to it. Because when we start saying that we're going to be something, that's when fault will really come in. We will never be Jesus. We will never be God. He, there is one Jesus, and there is one God, and we will not be it. So when it says we will be like him, we will be like him. But like. what does that mean? We will be like him. That's right. I, I don't want to go beyond that. I just don't want to go beyond what's written because I've gone through this conversation with people, and they make all of these claims, and they're not in the Bible. What's they're the in their heads. The they're what? What's the application for uh, well, we got one more. We might as well finish this up because we we got to finish eleven, and then uh, we've got five more minutes, so we'll do that. But anyway, that was a huge diversion. I don't know why that's in there. It was a good one. It it was a huge diversion, but it's important to understand that when the Bible says something, that we we have to be careful with what it says. I know we're going to be like Christ. I know we are. It says the the seed is going to be planted. We're going to be raised. We're going to be like Him, but we're not going to be Him. And because we're not going to be him, there are limitations it's still to us. Still going to be a real city. Uh, you betcha. The rulers are going to be recognized. You know, I mean, they, they're yep. bringing their glory into the gates. I That's mean, right. And what does it say? Outside are the, the, the dogs and the, the, the cowards and all of these things? Yeah. So, you know, but Hal Lindsey came up with something recently, and somebody sent to me. I didn't have time to watch it, but he's actually talking about heaven not being a physical heaven, but being a spiritual heaven something that it's not a real city and i didn't listen to it but somebody says oh it, it was very unusual commentary and i'd never thought of that before and hey man it describes a real city as far as i'm concerned it describes walls and he's saying that they're spiritual they're, they're it's allegory or something anyway yeah it tells you what they're made out of everything i would assume we are we were in the garden we were physical beings 
there's no reason to assume when paradise is restored that we're not going to be physical beings. When he was in the garden, he was capable of fault, okay? He exercised his fault against God. But if he was in the garden, we can assume that he would have stubbed his toe, right? We could have. I, I, there's no reason to assume that he couldn't. He could. All of these things may happen to him, but it's all speculation. All we know is that he could have lived forever. He could have if he was in there. And access to the tree of life was right there, and that had to be withdrawn from him. It had to be taken away from him physically. Let us remove access to the tree of life, lest he live forever. Okay? What's the problem with that? I've said this before. If you are a fallen being and you can live forever, imagine you will become eternally corrupt. The corruption that would come from you would become worse and worse and worse, and it would never, never heal itself. You wouldn't be like Satan. You would... Yeah, Satan. yeah, exactly. Would you? Would he be Satan or would he be like Satan? There you go. So, well, can it, I interject? Yeah. God says that we're blameless. We're not perfect. That's right. Blameless. Blameless. Means we're not living in sin. It's not, it's not premeditated <coughs> sin. That's right. It's but even now, sin. That's right. And even oh, now, we're blameless in God's eyes because right. of Christ. We can be like Him, similar, blameless, but never be perfect. Right. So, it's well, we'll be perfect right? in a sense, but we will not be perfect in the complete sense, where God Jesus. is the perfect perfect being because he is he's omnipotent he's omniscient he's omnipresent actually his physical body is because even though we're in we're living not living in sin we're only human it's our nature we're sin by nature so we have reactive right sin is in us even if we're not living in it right it's possible it's 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 possible that that's i want to make that distinction it doesn't mean that we're going to sin in heaven but at the same time, we have the ability to fault, and we need to make the distinction there. Right. We are not God, and that's the important distinction. But let's go on. Let's finish up verse 11, and then we, we can talk about this more uh, after you watch those sermons. Watch those first two or three sermons and learn about how fault enters. Anything, it's all doctor's fault. Uh, well, that's okay. Anyway, watch those, and that'll help you with that, and then we can talk about that because I'm not, you know, if, if I don't have something on my mind and I'm not, contemplating it before I talk about it, I'm subject to say something wrong, and I don't want to do that. that anyway, would be fault. Then you would be in fault. That's right. Especially with the Word of God. Yeah. If you fault yeah. with the Word of God, that is sin. And I don't want to do that. Okay? No. I don't want to Good. speculate with things that haven't happened. I don't want to speculate about what our bodies are going to be like and all of that kind of stuff that people love to make videos about. It's very sensational. It makes a lot of money. It makes a lot, sells a lot of books. And that's all it is. It's a speculation. And I don't want to do that with the Word of God. Okay, verse 411, one more time. The previous verse reminded us of what Scripture proclaims. Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised, long before. To ensure that point couldn't be misunderstood, God waited many long years before giving the sign of circumcision. I know I've read this already. I'm just reminding you. This is a sign of the seal of righteousness of the faith that he had while uncircumcised. The sign did nothing to further justify him in God's sight. By this picture, which we derive directly from Scripture, we learn that it is God who defines the parameters and establishes the basis by which a person is declared righteous. And this is shown to be by faith and faith alone. That's where I stopped. When the faith is properly directed towards God's promises, meaning the work of the Messiah, because people have faith in Islam, they blow themselves up having faith that God is going to give them 72 virgins. That is wasted faith because it is misdirected faith okay but when the faith is properly directed towards god's promises meaning the work of christ we are counted as righteousness but as righteous i'm sorry abraham was made the type or the pattern of the faithful 
that he might be the father of all those who believe, according to Paul. There is no distinction made in us because there was none made in him. He simply believed God and received the blessedness of God. As this is the pattern, then it is available to all, as Paul says, though they are uncircumcised, that the righteousness might be imputed to them also. Just as it was imputed to Abraham, it can be imputed to us by the same act of faith. That is Paul's logical argument there. This wondrous relationship with God is available to all, Jew and Gentile, male and female. It is open to any person of any culture, ethnicity, or race. No person is above another, and no person is excluded when mere faith is exercised. This is the very heart of the gospel, and it is reflected in Jesus' words of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, ugly or beautiful, doesn't matter, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, right? Whoever means just that. All who believe are granted the same inheritance and become Abraham's descendants adopted into God's family. A little life application and we're done right on time. A simple act of faith is all that is needed to change our eternal state. It doesn't matter who you are. If you've accepted Jesus as Lord, you have been declared righteous and stand justified before God. Don't let anyone steal your joy. I'm talking to the guy that sent me that email this morning by telling you that more is needed. Your faith has healed you, O child of God. Faith alone. Works, my question, as I said earlier, what works? What works? What works? You tell me what works will further justify me, and I'll show you where it's not in the Bible. How's that? You tell me what works. Can't when somebody's what? Yeah. Can't prove a negative. You can't prove a negative. That's right. <laughs> what works? That's all you need to ask these people. What works? And because um, uh, who do I want to pick on? Either the doctor or Burke. One of the Burke, you're closer. Just uh, he <laughs> picked on me. I did last week. Oh, did you? Okay, doctor, it's your turn then. <laughs> Pray loud, please. Our loving Heavenly Father, it's such a joy that we can come into your presence, Lord, because of what Christ has done for us. Lord, we especially thank you for Charlie, who founds the scriptures. Lord, we just pray that we be guided by the Holy Spirit to understand your teaching. And Lord, we pray as we go our ways that you go with us, maybe you know, radiate Jesus Christ. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, let me back this up and say goodbye to these folks. Let's see here. It's still recording. We've got to go to break. All right, almost. Okay, there we go. We love you. Have a wonderful week. Y'all take care now. No, you. I, I, you remind me by email, and I'll send you. I think there's two that you should watch that will explain how fault is possible in a non-divine um, being. Any non-divine being, okay? And it's all philosophical. I want you to know that in advance. It's not a biblical sermon. It's a philosophical sermon about how fault can enter. Sandy, have a wonderful week. God bless you now. You what? Okay. Well, no, it's based on what happened and why it happened. But what I'm saying is we have to understand philosophically what happened because the Bible doesn't fill in the details. So, but um, I think there's two sermons. I think, anyway, send me an email and I'll send you for that. And if you were not God, you were subject to fault. 
It doesn't mean you're going to, and it doesn't mean that all fault is sin. But when you exercise it, I, 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 like I say, I, I'm precise with the words. Watch that, and it'll help you out. It's just that when it says that we will be like him, I just don't take that to the extreme that some, I've heard